second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians that's in the Scriptures, but he actually wrote four letters to the Corinthian church. The first one was Paul's attempt just to give them proper training on what does it look like to be a Christian church. And for a while, the church of Corinth responded well, but then they started falling and slipping into sins such as sexual immorality and division among one another, social snobbery where they put themselves above the poor instead of helping the poor. So Paul writes another letter to rebuke them and to tell them to come back, come back to the grace of the gospel that they receive so that they might serve and love others in their community. They respond well, and so this is where we find this letter in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8 where he's encouraging them to take one more step in the grace that they've received. So in verse 7 we begin through 11. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The Church of Corinth in that time period could really be matched with, with America in a lot of ways. It was an affluent area. They were a popular seaport in between the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, and so a lot of bustling was happening, a lot of economic growth in this area of Corinth. And so the church had money. But as we see, even if we go into Charlotte, you can see a lot of money in one block and poverty in the next. So it is in the church of Corinth and the area around there. There's Judean believers that need their help. And so Paul is reaching out to them, trying to encourage them to give. Of course, the church of Corinth is, is much like us as a country and as churches, that, that they have fervor, and then they'll fall away and, and get relaxed. And as I said earlier, they had done that. But let's focus for a second on America. Our country was founded on a lot of religious principles. We had not one but two great awakenings where people repented and said, we want to follow God in this country. But yet, we too have gotten comfortable again. We, even as churches, sometimes preach the gospel of comfort. We preach the gospel of success. And we lose the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not how to seek His face, but how to seek our comfort. In the text, Paul is challenging them to prove that their love is genuine by being generous to the poor Judean believers in the area. And so it is today. Poverty is an astronomical and perpetual problem in this world. Not just our country, certainly not just our area, but everywhere. And we as Christians have to wrestle with this seeming paradox that on one hand, God is sovereign over all creation, and He is 
actively pursuing us in history. And yet there's continual suffering going on in this world. It's one of those mysteries that God's glory is connected to our suffering. The Scriptures promise that, in fact. Paul writes to another church in Rome, and he says that Christians, our suffering produces endurance. And our endurance produces character. And our character produces hope. Better yet, in Romans 8, we know the passage that can be served as a blanket sometimes, but God will work all things good for those who love Him. The main thing to hold on to in a passage like this and a truth about poverty that we live in today is what about without God? Without God, suffering is meaningless. Poverty is hopeless. But with Christ, we can take another step. So poverty is a perpetual problem. Jesus even acknowledged this to his constant accusers. They would come up and say, you should give to the poor instead of do this and do that. And he would say in in all the Gospels, you always have poor with you. We have poor with us today, and here's some statistics to prove it. 80% of the world population lives on less than $10 a day. That immediately puts us as Americans in the top 20%. We're rich. You may not think you're rich. If you have a car, you have a house. If you don't have rain hitting you late at night, if you're not freezing outside, we're rich. Less than $10 a day. Consequences for those countries that can't afford shelter, that can't afford more than $10 a day, they have a problem with proper medical care. Almost 400,000 deaths a year in Africa due to malaria. That number has improved in the last 10 years. Um, It used to be well over a million. But nonetheless, 400,000, a lot of those are children. Speaking of children, 800,000 children die annually due to diarrhea. And that's because of lack of purified water in their area. It's so bad that 800,000 children in this world die annually. I saw statistics done on a comparison spending money on leisure consumption for the first world countries, you know, that top 20%, and and things spent on poverty alleviation. And here's the numbers I found. This is, uh, this is actually a while ago. It said $536 billion in 1998 was spent on narcotics, alcohol, cosmetics, ice cream, and pet food. All luxuries. $536 million compared to $28 billion, or sorry, billion compared to $28 billion on global education, water purification, and general health and nutrition needs. That's almost 20 times the amount that we seek comfort over helping. And I certainly say we. I'm a part of America. When I read these stats, it, it, it hurts. It twists. But talking about twists, there's a twist in poverty as well. It's not just these countries need our money. It's not just these countries need us to pay for things or even come over and do things for them. A civil rights lawyer named Gary Hogan tells of a different problem than food and education in some of these, these countries. I'll just tell you a couple of stories that, that I thought were 
eye-opening for me. One, he tells of a woman that came to see him and spoke of seeing her child die of starvation. But she said, you see, the problem wasn't that I didn't have food. I lost my husband. He, she, he says, what do you mean? He's like, I was watching my husband pass away before us in our home. We had food in the cupboard. We had provision for our children. There were three children. Everyone was taken care of, but we were losing a loved one. Shortly after that loss, a knock came on the door. And before she knew it, her neighbor had pushed his way through and had taken over the house and kicked them out. There was no law and order. There was no policeman to come save the day. She lost her home. And so seeing her husband pass away, shortly later she saw her son also pass away of starvation because no one was there to protect them. Another story is of, we hear of multiple organizations, and I'm going to speak of one that I, I believe is a good one, and there's many others, but sometimes they can be under-supervised, and this one organization was getting money for education for those who couldn't afford it on their own, and, and food. So this girl was set up, she got her books, and she knew where she was supposed to go to school. She heads down that road to go to school the first day, excited, except she meets three older men. She cowers away in her closet, never to take that journey again, never to get the education that someone in America possibly paid for, because there was no law and order. You see, poverty has multiple facets and many variables. It's not just about giving time and money. It's an epidemic problem. Last, I want to talk about the views on poverty according to the Scriptures. Sure, the Scriptures certainly talk about hungry, feeding the hungry. But judging by our congregation, we're not going to fit into that category as easily. So I want to throw out a few others. There's also relational poverty. Proverbs talks about, He who has many friends is considered rich, but he who has no one to fall back on is poor. Do you have relational poverty? Do you feel alone? Maybe even in a crowded room you feel like no one knows you. God has come for that as well. Another is poor health. Do you constantly feel like you're going to the hospital or to the doctor's office because you feel pain? Or maybe you have a mental struggle. You're always exhausted. If so, you might have poor health. The Bible also talks about being poor in spirit. In Isaiah 61, it says that God has come to bring good news to the poor, the brokenhearted. Not only what's poor on the outside, but also what was poor on the inside, the brokenhearted. So what do we do? First, we can ask those questions about what kind of poverty do we wrestle with. But second, let's look back to the text, to the material that the church of Corinth has and how the need of the Judean believers is there and they're challenged to help. Paul says in verse 8 for, for them to prove that their love is genuine. Christians, our call is not just to be excellent in prayers. Our call is not just to be excellent in reading our Bibles. Our call isn't just to be excellent in knowing about God and speaking well about Him to others. We're also to honor Christ by giving in generosity so that we may prove that our love for God is genuine. This is not a command, though, but a challenge to prove that your love is genuine. As we love God, 
Our desire to help should increase. To prove that your love is genuine by following through, that's the next thing that Paul talks about in this passage. Prove your love is genuine by simply being willing. And the second part is by following through. He says in verses 10 and 11 that he gives this judgment, that it benefits you, that a year ago you wanted to give. A year ago, it seems like some time has gone by, but he says now finish doing it as well so that your readiness can be matched by your completing it out of what you have. To prove that their love is genuine by helping, but also not trying to be God, and that's maybe more of an American thing. We as Americans can struggle with a savior complex. Here's what I mean. You, you might be thinking it's possible that, wow, you know, maybe if, if I'd be willing, sure, I got money, but I, I, I need to give it to this and this and this, but if I really, really wanted to, I could give my money over here and I could save some people. I could go and I could put things together and I could fix that, that problem that this area has if I just put in my time and my effort. I am their solution. I'm just not available. Or maybe you do give thinking that you're solving everything. But that's a misconception that can sometimes be carried into short-term mission trips. We are coming to save you. I've been reading a book called When Helping Hurts, and I recommend it. One of the things that I read, and this is not my experience in short-term missions, because I've been on a few with the, the youth at our church, but nonetheless, this American church made a decision they wanted to go and make a big impact in this country that was struggling, and they thought, you know, let's go to the future. Let's try to help the children. That's the future of the country. Let's share the gospel with them. So they plan big. They plan extravagant. They have great props. They have great gifts that they're offering them, telling them of a greater gift of Christ. They have lots of candy if you answer the questions right. They have a huge turnout. It seems like every child in the community comes. And when it's over, everybody's crying because big things seem to have happened. Lots of children making professions. They go away. And they check in later and they hear that the church that they were helping, they really hurt. Because now, no children will come. Now, when the dust is cleared and the Americans have left, and the great props left, and the great gifts, and, and all the candy, and all the, the excitement, they didn't want to come and hear about the gospel anymore from this church. They didn't have much to offer other than the greatest gift. We have to be careful even as Americans who want to help, not to just try to throw what we think is helping on hurting countries. So mission to the world, I want to highlight this because I had the opposite experience. I went to Belize two years ago with our youth, and I was surprised. As soon as we stepped off the plane, you know, you kind of get that feeling of like they're excited to have us, but he kind of sat me down and the rest of our team in this somber motion and said, we're not coming to save them. We're coming to help them. And in order to help them, you're not going to do everything you think you're going to do. We'll have a schedule, but we're going off of their culture schedule, which is a little different. And sure enough, we helped them build a building where one of their managers is building it with us, which is part of the deal. They want to make sure that the indigenous people are helping. Another thing, vacation Bible school comes, or at least the time comes, and the children are everywhere. And we're looking around, and I remember seeing our liaison for Mission to the World go up to the pastor and say, Hey, what are we doing? 
And the pastor kind of looks around, sees us, and he's like, well, you guys can uh, do vacation Bible school now. He's like, no, no, no. We're not doing that. We're helping. This is your thing. You're the leader. This is your vacation Bible school. And the pastor kind of looked around a little bit. Then he ended up calling up a couple of mothers, and they came up, and they grabbed a, a book and started going over the gospel in their language in a very passionate manner. And I was very impressed. And I thought to myself, there's no way we could have done that. We could have smiled. We could have been real nice to them. We could have had somebody translating what we were saying. But these people were very gifted. They just needed some help. We could sit with the kids and help them focus. And of course, we did some other things to make sure that, that they had everything that they needed in order for them to do ministry. But I was very encouraged by Mission to the World doing that in Belize. They had the resources in order to get things moving. We were to come and to help them in the different ways that we could. So we did. We in, uh, included momentum and so forth, but we did not take over. And I was thankful for that. So in order to prove that your love is genuine, like Paul calls the church of Corinth, we must seek to understand first poverty and the people that we're seeking to help. We, we don't understand the culture. We're not going to go in there with a nice southern accent and woo them to Christ. There's a huge cultural shift even if we go again into our local areas. We go into Charlotte to these poverty-stricken places. It's a different culture. Okay? They don't think the same way as a middle-class suburbanite would think. You have to get to know them. You have to spend time with them. You can't just come in and start pouring out what you think they need. Though it takes time and more effort, we can prove that our love is genuine by giving more time. Okay, so about a year ago, a year and a half ago, I'm on a date. And it's going wonderful. Okay, beautiful girl. Okay, she is... Uh, She's just looking really good, and I've got a job. Sorry, I, got, I started thinking about her. i got a job here at, at high school, um, and i got a job with the church, part-time youth director. Things are going good, and, and uh, the time had come where our teachers, we had gotten that raise we had been looking for for a few years. And so I'm sitting down with her, and I'm like, I'm going to test this girl out, see if she's financial savvy. So I said, all right. Now, I don't have any problems paying my mortgage. I'm able to pay my bills at this point. And so really, I've got some extra resources. What do you think I ought to do with them? Now, I'm thinking, you know, even good answers would be something like, oh, save three to six months' income so you have financial peace. Or maybe you should pay more principal on your home. I'm like, does she even know that word principal? But I was like wondering if she's going to say that. Does she, is she going to say save up for a ring? Be excited about that. She, was, she said, you can sponsor a kid through Compassion International help pay for his education and food. Now, a caveat for that is Compassion has got a great reputation for being supervisors, making sure their funds are going to the right places. But back to the story. She tells me that, and to be quite honest with you, I was a little disappointed. Not because it, it wasn't a good answer. It was a great answer, a wonderful answer. One of the reasons I married her is because she challenges me to love others. But she had told me something that was hard for me to do. Well, I loved her, so I started supporting a child in Peru. You hear that? My motive, my reason was for selfish gain. I wanted to impress her. I didn't want to be a hypocrite and seem like I didn't genuinely love God and therefore help others in need. Did you catch that? I didn't want to be a, I didn't want to be a hypocrite and seem like I didn't love God and therefore want to help others in need. 
I was struggling right then. I was failing right then. If you're someone who's maybe hearing some of these poverty stats and thinking, you know, I ought to do more. Maybe I could do a little bit more. I ought to do it. You're, you're failing as well. As Christians, our call is not to do the right thing. As Christians, our call is to do the right thing for the right reasons. We have to look and see that because we love God first, that because of that love, we want to love others. If you skip the loving God step, you're just picking up a loud symbol with me, saying, look, look what I'm doing. Look, conscience, at what I'm doing. Look, pretty girl, at what I'm doing. Look, church, at what I'm doing. Look, God, at what I'm doing. Clanging the symbol, trying to give because we ought to. God is not impressed with our giving. He has given so much more. And what the Scriptures teach us is that God does not focus on what we give on the outside. He sees the motive on the inside. Are we trusting Him with our resources? We don't prove our love is genuine simply by giving. It must come from a genuine love for God. As Paul says in that passage in church, to the church of Corinth, we don't prove our love to God and others is genuine because we want quick results. Okay, short-term efforts give short-term results. In America, we like results fast. Click of a button, first time we try something should be success. I teach high school students, I know how it is. If they can't figure it out in five seconds, it's very frustrating. And oh, that's too much. But we have that same problem. If it takes too long, if it takes too much effort. So we don't prove our love because we don't want to take the time. We don't understand the culture. We carry that mentality. We, we, don't, we want the quick mentality. A lot of countries we serve, they don't need the material resources as much as they need to be trained in sustaining themselves. In order to help another culture, whether here in Charlotte, in the poverty-stricken areas, or across the world, we must be willing to understand their culture and how it works. Before we can help, them work towards self-sustaining practices. That's what makes me thankful for agencies like Mission to the World who they go into these areas and they stay. Okay, these short-term mission trips are just kind of coming as support. But they're there constantly trying to hand off the ministry to indigenous people. So I, I recommend Mission to the World and I'm sure there's many other agencies that we can do short-term missions with. But if you're going to go on a short-term mission, if you're going to spend that money, make sure that you're using it to help them sustain themselves, not just drop something off. So we don't have genuine love because we are self-focused. We don't have genuine love because we are impatient. And we don't prove our genuine love because we are ignorant. You are ignorant. I am ignorant. And I'm not talking about being ignorant of what's out there in the world. The poverty that's there. 80% of the world on less than $10 a day. That's, that's real. But I'm not talking about poverty out there. I'm talking about the poverty in here. You know, it's kind of ironic how the, the message goes with Jesus in the famous Sermon on the Mount. Because He explicitly says that we need to be poor in the Spirit. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom. So I ask you, do you have everything you need? 
are all relationships in your life where you want them to be? Are you in perfect health? Are you able to do good things anytime you want, when you want, and how you want? Or do you find this internal struggle battling against you of laziness or selfishness that you have to constantly wrestle with in order to reach out and help other people? The call, the encouragement is for us to repent of our vain ignorance, of our own needs, to be poor in spirit. As a mentor told me, mature Christians don't repent less. They repent more because they just see more. They see more their need. They're poor in spirit. That's good news. If you are poor, that's good news. If you're poor and you know it, clap your hands. There you go. I actually wasn't expecting y'all to clap, so that's pretty good. But no, if you're poor and you know it, in the Spirit, then you are primed, and you need the hero that's here to bring good news. If you're poor in spirit and you know it, you want the one who will never leave you or forsake you. If you are poor in spirit and you know it, you want to know the one who can provide for your every need. He gives us the church to do that. If you're poor in spirit and you know it, you long for the return of the one who will give you a new body that will have no more aching. Amen? Amen. Ministry to the poor will be an overflow of your genuine love for God. You'll go to someone and you'll say, here's some bread, but if you know you're poor in spirit, you're longing to tell them of the bread of life, Jesus Christ. You may go and offer them water, but you're longing to show that this well's going to run dry, but there's living water that will never run dry. It will change the way we serve. If you know you are poor, you are primed for correct hope. Not in this broken world, but hope in the one who waits and will come back and set all things right. Be poor in spirit with me. God, help us all to be poor in spirit. Set your eyes on Him who is truly rich. How can we prove our love is genuine through generosity if we don't recognize the one who genuinely loved us with His generosity? Paul says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might be rich. That's how Jesus did it. Jesus loved the poor. The whole world. Not just the poor in material things. He loved all, genuinely, perfectly, wholly. Jesus the generous. He has done this in our place. So you and I, we fail. We are hypocrites sometimes. We do forget to hope correctly. But Jesus has made a way for us. Jesus laid down self and was not selfish. Jesus waited for 30 years. It says in the Scriptures that he was, he was moving towards the age of 30 when He actually started doing ministry. What was He doing during that time? Part of it, observing and seeing the brokenness and the poverty amongst all the world. It says He was a man of many sorrows. He wasn't sorry because of the end. He knew the end. 
was victorious. Matter of fact, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured that cross. But he was a man of sorrow because he hurt when he saw our poverty. He came, the idea of Christmas, he put himself in flesh when he had everything so that we could then have everything with him. To be poor in spirit in a good way is to see your need and to long for him to feel it. He can and he will. So, how can we do it? Only through Him. Through Him we can do it. You can remember Christ, and He will help us have genuine love for the poor. Verse 5, a little bit earlier in the text, talks about a whole other church that, that's poor. Okay, they don't have much money, the Macedonian church. But He says, they gave more than you can imagine. But He says how? Right here in verse 5 He says, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us the Macedonian church gave because they knew who had given to them first and they focused on that again it's Christmas time what a wonderful time to be reminded of why we are motivated to give Dietrich Bonhoeffer which Dean mentioned last week and I thought he was going to use this quote I'm glad he didn't but Dietrich Bonhoeffer the one who was amidst the world when Hitler was doing terrible things to Jews and many others. He says this about the joy of God. The joy of God goes through the poverty of the manger. Remember, we wrestle God as sovereign and sufferings here. The joy of God goes through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. That is why it is invincible, irrefutable. It does not deny the anguish when it was there, but finds God in the midst of it. In fact, precisely there. It does not deny grave sin, but finds forgiveness precisely in this way. It looks death straight in the eye, but it finds life precisely within it. In light of the love of God that goes through the manger, I charge you to pray about ministry to the poor, that God would give you a desire and a love for Him that would strike you to want to go and be generous. There are opportunities in our church to serve. In the love of God, you can prove your love is genuine by helping out with something called car care. It's where men and women go and help Women who may have children that can't afford car care on their own. So we, we do oil changes and they fix cars. There's another ministry, a soup kitchen in Monroe that we like to work with. You can volunteer and help with that. In the love of God, you can prove your love is genuine by helping battered women. Many people here go to the battered women's shelter. And right next door, the crisis pregnancy center. Those who are scared for their life yet have new life in them and are afraid. We can go and we can help them with genuine love. In the love of God, we can prove our love is genuine to those in the church. Many passages in the Bible talk about loving our own. If there's needs, love each other well. They will know we are Christians by our love. They look at us. They watch our churches and how we love one another. 
In the love of God, you can prove your love is genuine by seeking to help others on short-term mission trips by partnering with good organizations that are trying to help these ministries, these countries, these cities, these small churches be self-sustaining. That's where to go. So in conclusion, we can prove our love is genuine in generosity in three ways. First, meditating daily on what Christ has done to help the poor in spirit, all of us. Secondly, pray for a heart of patience as you seek to really help. Genuine love is not sporadic. It is committed. And it takes time. Thirdly, and lastly, get involved. We all need to be involved. Seek someone to help. I'll leave us with Paul's encouragement with the affluent church in Corinth. He says in verse 11, So now, finish doing it well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Let us pray.